Hello there, faithful rabbit hole listeners. Hey, I just want to take a quick moment before I get started with this episode to say, hey, sorry it took so long. Sometimes these things just get out of my hands and there's life and you know what? I don't get paid for this and I kind of have to fit it in where I can. So I'm sorry this took like a month to get to you, but that's what happens. Uh, I hope to not be so long on the next ones because hopefully they won't be so large of a project as this name thing was. But I'm going to get rid of this later. Uh, But for right now, if you've been waiting and you're in there today, thank you so much for being patient. And now let's get to the show. Play ball. Round the internet we go, where we end up no one knows. Sit back and enjoy the show, down the baseball rabbit hole, down the baseball rabbit hole. Hello and welcome to the baseball rabbit hole. I'm your host, Michael Cotton, and this is the show where I ask the internet a baseball question and follow the rabbit holes that it opens in the web. Before we get started here, uh, let me give a shout out to Danny Rocket for the new baseball rabbit hole theme song. Thank you, Danny, and I hope everyone loves it as much as I do. Okay, this episode is the bottom of the third inning. Don't worry if you haven't listened to the top of the third inning yet. The order really doesn't matter because I am just talking about the names and places of all the current MLB teams. The top of the inning was the National League because the NL is older than the AL, but now it's time to get into the junior circuit. I started the NL in the East, so I will go ahead and start the AL in the West for no other reason than it's the opposite direction than I did before. So it's time to step into the box and dig in to the baseball rabbit hole. Strike one. Just like an inning starts at the top, I will start at the top with the Seattle Mariners. If you've listened to the top half of this inning, you will know that Bud Selig, the villain of most baseball stories, took control of the Seattle Pilots after they struggled financially in their first year due to the mishandling of expansion because of a senator from Missouri who whined about having to wait for his new toy. But I'm going to have to hit the brakes here because I almost went down another rabbit hole and I'm trying to stick to a theme. Anyway, the Seattle Pilots became the Brewers and Seattle sued Major League Baseball for breach of contract. They won that lawsuit and Major League Baseball was set to return to Seattle in the spring of 1977. The team held a naming contest that resulted in 15,000 submissions. Of those 15,000, they considered 600 of them, which still seems like way too many to be considering. Anyway, many fans had submitted the name Mariners, but the team ultimately chose Roger Zamotis because he did the best job of explaining the name as a nod to the association between Seattle and the ocean upon which it sits. He won season tickets and an all-expenses-paid vacation to follow the team on one road trip for any road series. Sounds like a good prize. But Roger never showed up to claim his tickets. The team reportedly wrote to him, went to his house, and left messages. But they never found the guy. Wait a minute here. They never found the guy? 
I mean, something smells a bit fishy down at Pike Place, if you know what I mean. They say there were many submissions of the name Mariners, but they didn't just choose one of those people because they couldn't find old Roger Zamotis? I wonder why. Could it be that the first iteration of a baseball team in Seattle failed? Could it be that ownership never actually intended to give out a prize for naming the Mariners? Could Roger Zamotis be a fake name for a fake winner of a fake contest? These are the questions that I have. Okay, not really, but it's more fun to think that way and have these uh, conspiracy theories, but it's probably not true. As of 2017, the Mariners stated that the prize package was still available for Mr. Zamotis if he ever stepped forward, but I think we all know what's happening. If you happen to know a Roger Zamotis, please tell him his tickets are waiting. So that's the story and the mystery of the Seattle Mariners team name. They have never changed their name in any way, but the fans do sometimes call them the M's. If this was 1900, they'd probably end up changing their name to that, but that's not how it's done anymore. Let's head south to the land of the green and the gold, Oakland, California. The Oakland Athletics did not originate in Oakland. We have to head back to the end of the 19th century to find their beginnings in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Athletic Club of Philadelphia began playing baseball in 1860. In 1875, they turned pro and were actually part of the original 1876 National League. That team got booted after only a year when they refused to travel to other cities due to financial problems. An unrelated team was a founding member of the American Association and simply stole the name from the earlier team because copyright really wasn't a thing. The American Association failed, and that team went away, too. In 1901, the American League was founded, and the league wanted a team in Philadelphia to compete with the Phillies. This team was also unrelated to either of the first two teams, but they stole the name anyway. I don't know what's going on in Philadelphia, but good goats, they were really into the name Athletics. Wow. The Philadelphia Athletics played in the AL until 1954, when the team, after years of failure, had to sell. The AL felt like the team could not function at all in Philadelphia anymore, so they approved a sale to an owner who moved the team to Kansas City. They became the Kansas City Athletics in 1955. In 1960, the team was sold again to Charles O. Finley. Finley really thought of himself as a pioneer of baseball marketing. And as part of that, he started to phase out the team being called the Athletics in favor of just calling them the A's, even though the team never officially changed from the Athletics. Finley also didn't like the Kansas City part of the name, and as early as 1961, was talking to cities all over the country about moving the team. He tried to move them to Louisville, Kentucky in 1964, but the league vetoed it. He then tried to move the team to Oakland, California, but the league denied that move as well. Upset that the league was stopping him from moving away from Missouri, Finley threatened to move the team to a podunk little town called Peculiar, Missouri. 
but that was a bit of an empty threat. Seattle made a play for the A's in 67, but Finley chose Oakland instead, and the team became the Oakland Athletics in 1968. KC was given an expansion team after Senator Symington whined about the move. This was the same guy that forced the league to move the expansion up to 69, which ultimately doomed the Seattle Pilots. Everyone who claims politics isn't part of sports, tell them about Senator Symington of Missouri, whose idiocy directly affected three different Major League Baseball franchises. Anyway, Finley moved the team to Oakland, right across the bay from the San Francisco Giants. That has been the name ever since. But in 2021, the team began looking for a new city, so it seems likely they will soon be called something else. Well, let's leave Oakland behind like the Athletics are attempting to do and move south down the coast to Los Angeles. In 1961, the singing cowboy himself, Gene Autry, started the first team to actually begin in California rather than relocating there. He named the team the Los Angeles Angels, which means the Angels Angels, but I guess nobody else thought that was weird. The Los Angeles Angels were a minor league Pacific Coast League team owned by the Dodgers ownership, who had purchased the team from P.K. Wrigley. Wrigley owned the team as a minor league team for his major league team, the Chicago Cubs. And this is why, in their first season, the Los Angeles Angels played at the Los Angeles Wrigley Field, which had been built by William Wrigley years before. Yeah, maybe some of you didn't realize there was a Wrigley Field in Los Angeles, California, that really didn't look much like the Wrigley Field in Chicago, but there were two of them. After that first season, the team moved to Dodger Stadium, which they shared with the Dodgers, for the next four years while they got their own stadium built in Anaheim. When the team moved to Anaheim, Autry decided they shouldn't be called the Los Angeles Angels anymore. So, he changed the name to the California Angels. This name stuck for 30 years until another famous Anaheim resident, the Walt Disney Company, purchased the team from Gene Autry. As they negotiated the new leasing agreement with the city of Anaheim, Disney agreed to change the name to the Anaheim Angels, which made more sense for both Anaheim and Disney, really. In 2003, Arturo Moreno became the first Mexican-American MLB owner when he purchased the team from the Disney Corporation. In 2005, Moreno inexplicably tried to change the name to the Los Angeles Angels, despite the team not being in Los Angeles anymore. But hey, let's not get a map out and put that in the way of a great name like the Angels Angels. Anaheim fought back against the Angels Angels, and due to the contract they still had from the Disney days, Moreno was forced to have Anaheim in the team name. So, he changed the name officially to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, which, in my opinion, is one of the stupidest names I have ever heard. The city of Anaheim and its residents hated the name and continued to fight for Los Angeles to be dropped. 
but they eventually lost, and Moreno was allowed to simply call his team the Los Angeles Angels, which, interestingly enough, they hardly ever do. The Los Angeles part of the name is not on their uniforms and is not listed in the stadium in any way. Of course, that changed almost immediately after I did this research. Literally, the same day I wrote this, Nike unveiled their City Connect uniforms for the Angels. For the first time since their inception in the early 60s, when they were actually in Los Angeles, the name Los Angeles is on the uniform. It's on a tiny patch on the sleeve that will not be visible unless you are right next to the player. So, I mean, there is that. Thanks, Nike, for creating... A city connect? Whatever. Let's move on. I'm diving back into the rabbit hole. We're going to make a right at Albuquerque and head to our next stop, Arlington, Texas. But of course, we can't go to Arlington just yet. The Rangers story actually begins in Washington, D.C. This is going to come up a couple of times in this episode because... The Washington, D.C. Senators, as you've already heard from the National League episode, was a name that was already used in D.C. And then the Nationals and then all the different stuff. It's it's a bit of a mess, but hopefully you can understand once I get through all of this. I doubt it, but let's get off of that. As a part of the expansion of 1961, the American League awarded new teams on each coast. The Angels were the West Coast team, and the Washington Senators became the East Coast team, which makes the fact that these teams are now in the same division all these years later kind of odd. The other odd thing is that the Senators were already in Washington, D.C., except not really. The Washington Senators had been in the AL since the beginning of the league, but moved in 1960 and immediately replaced in time for the 1961 season by a team with the exact same name, which leads a person to wonder why they didn't just award the expansion to the city where the Senators move. We're going to get to that answer soon when we get to the Central Division, don't you worry. As for the new teams, there seems to have been no thought at all to changing the Washington team name despite the fact that technically the new team in Minnesota could have taken the rights to it. But that kind of marketing and branding didn't occur to people back in the early days of the rise of the baseball oligarchies. The Senator's name stayed in D.C., much to the dismay of the poor House of Representatives that were hoping to get their day in the sun. But just like today, senators continue to block what the House of Representatives want and what the people want, and they just keep doing things that fail. And these senators of the American League were terrible. Over the 11 seasons that they were in the Capitol, they had a 418 winnings percentage. Bad teams get new owners, and this happened a number of times in Washington. The last owner of the Senators, Bob Short, purchased the team in 1968, ultimately outbidding none other than Bob Hope to get the new team. Of course, maybe some of you younger people don't know who Bob Hope was, and that kind of makes sense, but I will say, kind of look him up. He was a very big entertainment guy, a comedian, and 
did a bunch of stuff. Wow, I am old that I know who Bob Hope is, and I have to remind myself that people listening to this podcast may not know who Bob Hope is. <laughs> Whatever. Let's go on. Short made himself the general manager and immediately hired Hall of Famer Ted Williams to manage the team in 1969. That was the only year the team ever finished with a winning record, despite coming in in fourth place. Then Short immediately put the team up for sale for $12 million, and if nobody met that price, he was moving. Just for reference, the Yankees only pulled $8.8 million in 1973, and they were arguably the most valued team in the league. Nobody paid, of course, and Bob Short started shopping the team around to new cities. In addition to the relocation, Short also had a fire sale and traded off most of his best players in order to cut costs prior to the move. So, despite having their only winning season in 1969, 70-71 were a combined 55 games under 500. I assume Short was given a federal witness relocation deal in Arlington, Texas, so he not only moved, but had to change his name as well. I mean, it did make sense to change the team name since senators in Texas have literally never made any sense. So they changed the name to the Texas Rangers after the storied law enforcement agency founded in 1823. They have kept the name ever since. And just like every other federal witness who has ever been relocated, everyone forgot who they were and very few know who they are now. Okay, let's head south to Houston, the final team in this division and the final team to join the American League back in 2013. The Houston Astros were yet another expansion team from the 1961-62 MLB expansion. The teams in that expansion were the Angels and Senators from 1961 that we've already talked about, and then the Mets and Houston in the National League in 1962. So, three out of four of those teams, despite two of them being on the East Coast and two of them being in the National League, are now a part of the American League West in 2022. That's kind of surprising. But you should not be surprised that a baseball team in Texas decided to name their team after a gun. In their first three years, the Astros were called the Colt 45s, and although most of us these days associate that name with Billy D. Williams and 40 ounces of youth, Colt is actually a gun manufacturer from Hartford, Connecticut. So it doesn't even have any connection with Houston, except for the fact that Texans like guns. It also wasn't some sort of a marketing deal for the Astros either. The Colt Manufacturing Company had nothing to do with the naming, despite the fact that the team would be walking advertisements for their guns. A man named William Irving Nieder won a contest to name the team. His reasoning was that the Colt 45 was the gun that won the West, so it embodied the Texas spirit. That might have made more sense if there was an NL West way back then, but there wasn't. Neither the AL or NL had divisions at all in the 1800s. Like I said, it really was just because Texans are gun nuts. 
The other odd thing is that although a Colt 45 is sort of a nickname of a gun, it actually refers to the bullet itself, not a gun, so they didn't even get that part right. The Colt 45s played in Houston for three seasons at Colt Stadium. Still not a marketing tie-in, just completely free advertising for a company in Connecticut. But that was the name of the temporary field that they built while they were building the first domed stadium. They loved their guns so much that a bunch of old, rich, white dudes stood around and literally shot Colt 45s into the ground as the groundbreaking for the construction of the first air-conditioned domed stadium, which was a huge deal back in the day. The idea of a domed stadium seemed so futuristic at the time, and it was going to be air-conditioned, for God's sake, that they decided to call it the Astrodome in a nod to NASA working in Houston to develop manned mission to the moon as set forth by John F. Kennedy in 1961. The Dome was ready for the 1965 season, and the team decided to change their name to the Astros because they would be playing in the Astrodome. While the Astrodome was the so-called eighth wonder of the world in 1965, by the 90s, it was just another old multi-use stadium that nobody really liked. The Astros eventually got a new stadium in the year 2000, and you might think that since they were named after the field where they played, they might change their name when they got a new park. You would be wrong. And good thing, too, because the new field was called Enron Park after a company that said they were innovators in energy, commodities, and services, but were really just innovators in committing extensive acts of fraud, which eventually bankrupted the company. If the Astros had changed their name, we could only assume they'd call it the Enrons which would have been horrible. Anyway, we've made it to the wretched, disgusting bottom of the American League West garbage can, and it's time to take a short break. When we return, we'll head north to talk about the stupid Washington Senators for the third and final time this inning. As I alluded to before the break, we are starting with the Minnesota Twins, which unfortunately takes us back to the Washington Senators, who have already been talked about ad nauseum in the segment about the Rangers, the Nationals, God, everybody. It's just annoying. But hey, let's do it again, why don't we? So the Washington Senators was part of the original eight teams in the American League in 1901. They were called the Senators because they were located in the U.S. Capitol, where Senators are located. I almost said where Senators work, but decided the word located was much more apt because the Senators do nothing except for stop things from really happening. If you've already listened to the top of the third inning of the rabbit hole, you might remember that the Nationals were named after the Senators. That doesn't make sense since those are two different names, but here's what happened. In 1905, the team changed their name to the Washington Nationals. Although they kept that name for 50 years, the name Nationals only appeared on their uniforms for two seasons. 
1905 and 1906. And that was the first time a team nickname had ever even appeared on a jersey. Even though the team changed their name officially to the Nationals, the team was commonly referred to as the Senators. For about nine seasons, from 1912 to 1920s, they were unofficially called the Griffs, while Clark Griffith was their manager. In 1920, Griffith bought his team and was the owner until his death in 1955. They renamed the ballpark Griffith Stadium in 1923 after him. In 1955, Clark Griffith died and his nephew Calvin Griffith took over. That's when the name switched back to the Senators. Calvin Griffith was looking to move the Senators away from D.C. as soon as he took over. He tried moving the team to San Francisco before the Giants went there, but then started working towards moving to Minnesota after that fell through. The American League opposed the move until an upstart baseball league, the Continental League, was making moves to challenge Major League Baseball. They allowed Griffith to move the team there to stop the Continental League from getting a foothold. While the league wanted to move the team because of threats from the Continental League, Calvin Griffith was simply a racist who wanted to move his team away from D.C. because he thought there was too many black people there. He actually cited the lack of black people as one reason he moved to Minneapolis in 1960. Seriously, look it up. Once they finally got the opportunity to move, the team needed a new name. While the team was located in Minneapolis, they felt like they needed to reach out to neighboring St. Paul as well. It was thought that one reason the Lakers had poor attendance was because people from St. Paul didn't like that the team was called the Minneapolis Lakers. The nickname for Minneapolis and St. Paul is actually the Twin Cities. So the first proposed name was the Twin Cities Twins. The league killed that idea, so they went with the all-encompassing Minnesota and then kept Twins as the nickname. The logo of two ballplayers shaking hands are actually different baseball uniforms. The one on the left was a Minneapolis Millers uniform, and the player on the right is wearing a St. Paul Saints uniform in a nod to baseball on both sides of the Mississippi River. While the team was threatened with relocation or outright retraction many times, they never moved, and they have never moved on from that name either. Now that we can finally stop talking about the Senators, we are going to make an arc through the rest of the division by going to Detroit next. And it doesn't get any easier than Detroit. No weird naming contests, no ties to the Senators, and no name changes in the history of the team. They established a baseball team in Detroit in 1894 as a member of the Western League. By 1895, fans had begun calling the team the Tigers after an article in the Detroit Free Press referred to the team as Strouther's Tigers after Con Strouther, the 23-year-old first baseman and team manager. The Strouther part is obvious, but the Tiger part wasn't exactly clear. One story is that it was an homage to the Detroit Light Guard that was a military unit and used the Tiger as its mascot. 
The other story, and this makes a ton of sense the way that everyone was naming teams based on the color of socks guys were wearing, was that the writer was referring to the striped socks that the players on the Detroit team were wearing. Whether it was a sock stripe or a military mascot, the name Tigers struck, the name Tigers stuck, and has never changed. Oh, finally, a nice quick one, right? Well, let's keep traveling on to Cleveland and see what's up with the team that is currently in the first year of a name change right now in 2022. Like the Detroit Tigers, Cleveland established their team in 1894. Unlike the Tigers, they have had a number of different names throughout the century plus that they have been around. In 1894, the Grand Rapids Rippers were playing in the Western League, which would later become the American League in 1901. I have no idea why they were called the Rippers, so I will just assume the worst and say they were big fans of Jack the Ripper, whose grisly murders in 1888 were world famous, and that Cleveland is known for really offensive names. In 1900, the team moved to Cleveland and became the Cleveland Lakeshores because Cleveland is located on the shores of Lake Erie. It seems super obvious, but honestly, any name not taken from a color of the uniform or part of the uniform counts as very creative in my opinion. That name only lasted a year. When the American League declared itself a major league in 1901, Cleveland was one of the charter members and were called the Bluebirds, which was often shortened to blues based upon the color of their uniforms, which of course was blue. The players hated the name Bluebirds, and in 1902, the team changed its name to the the team changed its name to the Broncos, spelled with a superfluous H. So it seemed like it would be pronounced Bronchos. I don't know. That name did not catch on, probably because nobody could figure out if they were spelling it wrong or pronouncing it wrong. So they changed it again in 1903. In 1902, Napoleon Knapp LaJoy jumped from the National League Phillies to the American League Athletics, which resulted in a lawsuit that was supposed to return LaJoy to the Phillies. But Connie Mack of the A's traded him to Cleveland, which put him out of the jurisdiction of the court order. LaJoy was such a sensation in Cleveland that he was not only named captain of the team, but in 1903, the team became the Cleveland Napoleons after a suggestion from a Name the Team contest run by the local newspaper. The name was soon shortened to the Naps, which I think is an excellent name since I love me a baseball nap in the summertime. The team was called the Naps from 03 until 1914, when LaJoy was traded back to the Philadelphia Athletics. Despite my belief that Naps is an amazing baseball team name, the team felt that it was weird to be called the Naps when Nap LaJoy no longer played for the team. The team owner asked local baseball writers to come up with a new with a new name for the team. Local writers thought back to an old minor league team that used to play in Cleveland in the late 1890s called the Cleveland Spiders. That would have been a great name for the team, but things went a little sideways in the naming process. The Boston Braves had just won the World Series in 1914, so Native American iconography, wow, that's a tough word, was in vogue at the moment. 
the baseball writers looked right past the name Spiders and recalled that the team had often been called the Indians due to having Louis Sokalexis, a Native American, on the team. So, in order to be more like the champs, and with a complete lack of understanding of how good a name Spiders would have been, combined with a complete lack of understanding that Indians was probably a slur against the Spiders for allowing a Native American to play on their team, they changed the name to the Cleveland Indians in 1915. By the 1960s, tribes across the United States began to object to sports teams using names and logos of their people as part of the indigenous civil rights movement that led to the Indian Civil Rights Act of 1968. While this is less well publicized, it was an offshoot of the civil rights movement from the 1960s that led to the Civil Rights Act. So... There were not just black people trying to get their rights. It was Native Americans as well. 30 years later, in the late 90s, protesters were speaking out against the continued use of Indians' names and especially the racist imagery of Chief Wahoo that the Indians used as a logo. Bud Selig, our villain returns, claimed that nobody had ever complained about team names despite despite protesters being arrested in Cleveland in both 1997 and 98. So if they weren't complaining during that protest, then why were they arrested? Hmm, makes you wonder, doesn't it? Anyway, Selig was decisive in choosing not to act in any way and said the teams should make those decisions for themselves, which sounds like a very common argument recently. Ugh. In 2015, amidst protests citing the centennial of the Indians' name in Cleveland, the owner of the Indians, a rich, entitled white guy who inherited the team from his father who had purchased the team in 2000, claimed that he only heard from fans who liked Chief Wahoo, which is probably true, assuming there are more generically old white baseball fans in Cleveland than there are Native Americans because of the genocide that took place in the 1800s. Remember that? Well, despite the owner's insistence that everybody loved the name, the controversy did not go away, and in 2016, a year in which Cleveland was playing in possibly the highest profile World Series in the history of the game, the team's accomplishments were marred by the increased awareness of their racist logo and team name. The team lost that World Series, and after 2017, they lost the Chief Wahoo logo as well. Cleveland really thought that just getting rid of Chief Wahoo was all that was going to be needed, but the controversy surrounding their name continued even after they dropped the logo. In July of 2020, after a month of unrest in which the injustices of race were raised to a level that even rich baseball oligarchs could see, Paul Dolan started to rethink the name of his team. It had only taken 20 years of his family owning a team whose name had been protested continually year after year. The death of George Floyd and other racial injustices, which led to a summer of racial unrest and another sports owner deciding to remove the racist moniker from his football team for Dolan to seriously think about the team name. 
but it did happen. In December of 2020, he announced the team would no longer be called the Indians after the 2021 baseball season. This led to months of speculation and suggestions of great names like the Spiders before Cleveland finally announced their new name. The new name would be the Cleveland Guardians, which is named after the eight Art Deco statues on the Hope Memorial Bridge in Cleveland that are collectively known as the Guardians of Traffic. While initially panned, the name gained popularity due to the strong connection to Cleveland and the fact that those statues are pretty awesome. Everything was set for the name change to take place as soon as the season ended in October, except the team had overlooked one important detail. The name Cleveland Guardians was already taken. A men's roller derby team had already trademarked the name as their own and sued the Cleveland baseball team seeking to block that name change. The lawsuit was eventually withdrawn and both teams would use the name going forward. Everyone assumes the baseball team just had to write the correct sized check to make that happen. The baseball team officially became the Cleveland Guardians on November 18th, 2021. Hmm. Well, that was interesting. But I'm happy to move on to the south side of Chicago. In 1876, the White Stockings were a baseball team on the north side of Chicago. By 1900, that team had changed its name twice and were currently being called the Orphans. So, when Charles Comiskey moved his Western League team, the St. Paul Saints, who are commemorated on the Twins logo, to his home neighborhood in Chicago, the name White Stockings was up for grabs. It was a brilliant move by Comiskey, as the name White Stockings was synonymous with winning on the North Side and was still familiar to Chicagoans, having only been retired a decade earlier. The White Stockings reignited that winning tradition by winning the first American League championship in 1901. The team remained the White Stockings through the 1903 season, but the newspapers began to use their preferred term, the Sox, instead of stockings. And then they shortened it even more by writing Sox phonetically with an X all in an effort to make it easier to fit the team name in newspaper headlines. So the team just followed suit and changed their name to the Chicago White Sox, spelled S-O-X, in 1904. The team name has not changed ever since. Wow, another short one! Okay, let's keep moving west to our final team in the division, out in Kansas City. Oh my god, like the Senators I hate talking about Kansas City right now. Oh. So, as I told you when I was talking about the West Division, Kansas City was home to the Athletics before they moved to Oakland. They prompted Missouri Senator Stuart Symington to threaten the MLB antitrust exemption if they didn't immediately give a new team to Kansas City. Back in the day, Senators actually frightened baseball oligarchs, so the league immediately approved an expansion of four teams to begin playing in 1971. This was not good enough for Symington, who is apparently not used to being told to wait for things. So the league moved the plan forward for the American League teams. 
This is the situation that directly led to the Seattle Pilots having a failed start to their team, which led to Bud Selig buying them, moving them to Milwaukee, becoming the baseball commissioner of baseball, and spreading his evil across both leagues. But I digress. In 1968, the new ownership group decided to have a team naming contest, as many teams were doing. Sanford Port won the contest with his entry of Royals. What was the inspiration for this name? I kid you not, it was cows and beauty queens, which I hope are not the same thing in Kansas City, but who knows. American Royal is a nonprofit based in Kansas City since 1899. They offer all types of scholarship programs and agriculture education through their rodeos, horse shows, and barbecue contest. Mr. Port thought they represented the essence of the city. In addition to the American Royal Livestock programs, there was also a beauty pageant and parade with that name. So, like I said, cows and beauty queens. And they are different, which is good. Interestingly, the team's board voted 6-1 to one in favor of the Royals as the team name. The only board member that voted against it was the one that mattered the most, Ewing Kaufman, the owner of the team. He later changed his vote as the name grew on him in regards to the history of the Royals in Kansas City baseball. In the early 1900s, there was a Kansas City professional Negro barnstorming team called the Kansas City Royal Giants. And of course, the Kansas City Monarchs, which was one of the best baseball teams in the history of the game, was also in Kansas City. This persuaded Kaufman, thus the Royals ended up with a unanimous vote, and the team has been the Royals ever since, and through efforts of the Negro League's Baseball Museum, have continued to strengthen their ties to the Monarchs and baseball history in Kansas City. There is a single red seat in Kauffman Stadium where people who are actively involved in helping the community are honored by getting to sit in the Buck O'Neill seat, where he used to sit as a scout when he was watching games. Okay, that is the end of the AL Central. That was a good trip through the middle of the country. Let's head east after this next break. Let's head to the east side and see what we got happening on the old coast. Let's start down in St. Petersburg, Florida, where the Tampa Bay Rays play. So the Tampa Bay Rays should be an easy, quick one, right? They've only been a team since the 98 expansion. You wouldn't think that there would be a name change for a team created so late in MLB history. But you'd be wrong because of maybe the stupidest reason ever. Let's get into it. Tampa Bay and St. Petersburg have been a part of baseball as a spring training location since the early 1900s. Both cities had teams in the Florida State League called the Tampa Smokers and the St. Petersburg Saints, which was the origin of the Billy Joel song, Only the Good Die Young. The original owners agreed with Billy and named the team Tampa Bay instead of St. Petersburg because sinners are much more fun. Okay, that's a complete lie, but I thought it was kind of funny. The real story is that St. Petersburg was trying to get a major league team since the 1960s. 
In 74, Tampa Bay got the Buccaneers in an expansion to the NFL, but MLB never decided to move there despite many teams using St. Petersburg as the leverage for extorting their current city to build them a new stadium. St. Petersburg was so in on the idea of Major League Baseball in their city, they went ahead and built a stadium, the Florida Suncoast Dome, even before they had a team. They used the fact that they already had a stadium to try and entice teams to move there, but nobody really wanted to. In 1991, the MLB announced they were expanding, and St. Petersburg was right there with a brand new stadium ready to play ball and Major League Baseball said, nope, Florida baseball will be played in Miami, where the team could play outdoors in a football stadium instead. That didn't stop St. Petersburg, though. In 1992, Vince Namoli negotiated the purchase of the San Francisco Giants in order to bring them to St. Petersburg, but the owners blocked the sale of the team. So not only did they pass them up for expansion, but they also denied them a team that they could have bought. I just want to take a quick moment here and say, why in the hell was San Francisco always in these ideas of moving? They moved from New York to San Francisco, and then it seems like their name pops up any other time people are trying to buy a team. So weird. Back to our story. Namoli did what all rich people do, and he sued to get his way. The lawsuit worked, and Major League Baseball announced two expansion teams in 1995 for Phoenix, Arizona, and Tampa Bay, Florida. Namoli finally had his team in St. Petersburg, and he was going to call them the Tampa Bay Stingrays. I think it's dumb to have a team not be named after the town in which they play, but whatever, that was the decision you're probably aware that this decision didn't work. Why didn't it work? Because in Hawaii, the Maui Stingrays already owned that name. The Maui Stingrays used to play in the Hawaii Winter League, which was a minor league of Major League Baseball. The team was willing to negotiate with Namoli and offered to sell the name to him for the very, very reasonable price of $35,000. That's it. $35,000. Like a car, a nice car. I'm sure Namoli probably had four of them, but he said no. I mean, of course, the guy that had enough money to sue Major League Baseball and also still purchase the expansion rights for $130 million just would never pay that much for a name. I mean, ridiculous, right? Anyway, Namoli said no to that and changed the name to the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, which immediately sent the religious nut jobs into hysterics because the word devil was in the name. That's not what the devil rays means, but whatever. Religious people are crazy. Namoli was sensitive to the issues of the people with little grasp on reality, so he ran a poll with people having a choice between devil rays and manta rays. Apparently, most people understand that a devil ray has nothing to do with the Bible or fallen angels or anything like that, 
So the Devil Rays won the name contest and they played their first game in 1998. Now, if we know one thing, religious zealots are unwilling to drop any of their nonsensical ideas. They continued to whine and cry about the name Devil Rays for 10 whole years until the new owner, who'd purchased the team in 2005, finally relented and dropped Devil from the name. The new name was simply the Tampa Bay Rays and referred to Sunshine. It is an idiotic story, and I am so happy to move on from this and head north to Baltimore. Baltimore definitely has a more interesting story. Their origins go through two separate cities that now have teams and have denied their past in such a way that one of those teams in the other cities has co-opted the Baltimore past. The original team got its start in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and they were the first Milwaukee Brewers starting in 1877 as part of the Western League that you will remember from when I talked about the Tigers. Like the Tigers, they joined the American League when that began. Unlike the Tigers, they did not stay put. They played out the season of 1901 in Milwaukee, but after 24 years in that city, they called it a day and moved to St. Louis. In St. Louis, they chose the name the St. Louis Browns. There had been two iterations of the Brown stockings that eventually became known as the Cardinals. I'm sure they chose that name to reference the Brown stockings without actually using the name directly. So... St. Louis had two Major League Baseball teams for 53 years, but the Browns were by far the lesser team. In 1951, Bill Veck bought the team and ran it for three years. He thought St. Louis was too small for two teams, and he did his damnedest to run the Cardinals out of town. But it didn't work, and after three years of failure, Veck realized that he needed to move his team instead. He set up a deal with a group from Baltimore that would purchase a large stake in the team while Vec remained the principal owner. Unfortunately, not enough teams agreed to let him move the team. After some negotiations, Vec realized that the other owners didn't care about the move. They just didn't like him and wanted to push him out of the ownership spot. So he sold his remaining interest in the Browns to the Baltimore group and the American League immediately allowed the move. Just like when the Brewers became the Browns, when the team left St. Louis, they left everything behind and changed their name to the Baltimore Orioles in order to get a fresh start. The Baltimore Oriole is an actual species of bird and is the state bird of Maryland, so the decision for the name was an easy one. Now, when I say that the Orioles left everything in St. Louis, I meant it. The new owners wanted nothing to do with the Browns, who were known for being terrible. In fact, they have distanced themselves so much that the Cardinals actually took it upon themselves to recognize George Sisler, the St. Louis Browns Hall of Famer, with a statue at Bush Stadium, something that Baltimore has not done. So while the St. Louis Browns were not the precursor to the Cardinals, the Cardinals have taken up the Browns' cause and are the only ones doing anything to keep the memory of that team alive. Well, like the Orioles did, we are moving on and forgetting about the Brewer Browns. You may think that I'm just going to keep moving north to New York, 
but I've decided to make a little detour up to Canada. Look, it doesn't make any sense to end with the Canadian baseball team when most Americans don't even remember that there's a team in Canada. Plus, I've decided to finish in New York because, let's face it, whether any of us like it or not, the Yankees are the best baseball team in history, and they deserve the ending rather than being noted in the middle of a rabbit hole of a rabbit hole about the American League East. So it's Toronto next. The Blue Jays came onto the scene in 1976 as part of the Seattle Mariners situation in order to keep the divisions even. Toronto had tried to get the Giants earlier, but the deal fell through before it could happen. There's the Giants again. Like I said, it's crazy that this team just keeps showing up in people trying to buy them and move them. I mean, it was like Kansas City, it was Tampa, it was D.C., it was all these teams, and now even Toronto? Wow. I kind of viewed the San Francisco Giants as a bit of an untouchable team. But apparently, they are just open to every bidder. Well, that's a different story. Let's get back to Toronto. The expansion franchise was awarded to the Labatt Brewing Company. The company chose the name Blue Jays for the team for a number of reasons. First, the Blue Jay is a bird that is found in the Toronto area. Second, the color blue is used by most of Toronto's college and professional sports teams including the Maple Leafs of the NHL and the Argonauts of the Canadian Football League. So the color fit. The third reason, and what most people believe to be the main reason, is because Labatt's Brewing's flagship beer is called Labatt's Blue. And now that they own the team, it just made sense to solidify the continuity as Labatt's Blue Jays. Oddly enough, though, for the first six years that they played in Toronto, Alcohol wasn't even allowed to be sold in the stadium, which meant Labatt's Blue wasn't available at a Labatt's Blue Jays game. That has obviously changed, but the team name hasn't. They have been the Blue Jays for almost 50 years. And I am so happy to have yet another short thing because we are almost at an hour here. This is insane. Okay. Heading almost straight east, it's time to go to Boston. Boston was one of the charter members of the American League back in 1901. As we heard in the other episode that the Cincinnati Red Stockings moved to Boston and were the Red Stockings there as well, until they decided to start changing their name, which ultimately ended up in Atlanta. In the first seven seasons, the American League Boston team actually wore dark blue in their uniform and not red. They were most often just referred to as Boston, or sometimes the Boston Americans, to distinguish them from the National League team. The newspapers did try out some team names on them, but none of them really took outside of the newspaper. Some of those names were the Bean Eaters, the Somersets, because Charles Summers owned the team from 1901 to 1903, or the Collinsites, after the manager of the team. It's pretty clear why none of those names stuck. They were terrible. One name that almost got picked up was the Boston Pilgrims. Sometimes listed as an official name, it was actually only used in 1907 because that was when the poem, The Pilgrims at Home, was written by Edwin Fitzwilliam and read at the ballpark on opening day. 
And if you know anything about me or this podcast, then you know for sure I am about to read you this poem because I love baseball poetry. Technically, it was kind of sung to the tune of Rory O'More, but I'm not going to put you through any attempts to my singing. I'll just read it. The pilgrims are back on the home ground today. They've had sad experience since going away. They've lost their young captain, kind, honest Chick Stahl, who got too excited to Captain Baseball. The old king is dead, so it's God save the king. Jimmy Collins was captain for many a year. The strain on his strength and his mind was severe. He twice won the pennant, won and from all. Relieved of his cares, he's playing pennant baseball. Cy Young is as good as he ever was seen. And so is big, brilliant, and clever Deneen. Lou Krieger is catching and knows where he's at. He watches the bases as well as the bat. Ferris, while guarding his old second base, is setting a hair-raising, nerve-straining pace. Unglob and Wagner, both earnest in play, are gaining in confidence every day. Buck Freeman is hitting as hard as he can, and so is the ubiquitous Sullivan. And last but not least, the young student Jack Hoy is swatting the sphere like the broth of a boy. Well, there you have it. That was a poem that they read on uh, opening day. And let me just say, as a guy who writes poems every single day about baseball and about the Cubs, woo, that one wasn't very good, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe you loved it. If you did, let me know. Let's move on with this story here. John I. Taylor, who had become the principal owner of the team in 1904, hated the name Pilgrims. He said it sounded like the team was a bunch of homeless drifters instead of a professional baseball team. In the offseason between 07 and 08, he made a decision on a name, and it became the first official name of the team. The National League still had a team in Boston, and they still wore red. In 1907, though, the National League Boston team decided to drop the red from their uniforms, and they wore all white. This prompted the papers to start calling them the Doves. Taylor jumped at the chance to change his team's colors from dark blue to red. By this time, the White Stockings' name had been changed so that it was short enough for the papers to fit it on their headlines, and Taylor actually loved the Sox name. In 1908, the team officially became the Boston Red Sox, and they have not stopped using that name since even though the Doves over in the National League actually brought the red back to their uniforms in 1908, the same season that the Red Sox went to red as well. Unfortunately for the Doves, the American League team had locked the name Red Sox and the color down, and they eventually locked the city down when the Boston National League team left for Milwaukee and ultimately Atlanta. So, we are finally to the last team, and it has taken us forever to get here. I am so ready for this. Let's talk about the New York Yankees. Yes, we had to finish here because, like it or not, they've won 27 World Series 
that's more than a quarter of the World Series in the first 100 years that it was played. I mean, that's an amazing feat, and they truly are the best team. They're the most recognizable throughout the world. So let's talk about how they got there a little bit. As Ben Johnson made the push to start up the American League as a major league in 1901, he knew he wanted a team in New York City. Prior to 1901, the American League was trying to work with the National League. So when the New York Giants said no to another New York team, they decided not to go there. Now, if you're trying to do the math in your head about New York only having one team, the Giants, you have to remember that Brooklyn had only just become part of New York in 1898. So the idea that New York already had two teams was tentative since many people still considered Brooklyn its own city, even though it was technically part of New York City at that time. So the American League decided to start a team in Baltimore instead of New York called, of course, the Baltimore Orioles, as I've already talked about the Orioles. So be aware that this is not the same Orioles team that came later. This team played in Baltimore in 1901 and 1902. During this time, the two leagues were at war with one another. Although Ban Johnson had tried to be nice about it, the NL decided not to be so nice and poached players whenever they could. Many of the Baltimore Orioles were convinced to jump to the New York Giants between 1901 and 1903. By 1903, though, rich dudes did what rich dudes do and came to an agreement so that it would be harder for their employees to play one league against the other, leading to skyrocketing salaries. So with the collusion on the board and everybody getting along better, the Orioles decided to ask to move to New York City again. And despite the Giants again voting against it, they were allowed to do so beginning in 1903. With the change in city, the official bird of Maryland did not make sense as the name for the team. The new ballpark for the team was called Hilltop Park, because it was built in Upper Manhattan at one of the highest points in the city. The Orioles decided to change their name to the Highlanders to reflect this relative high elevation point, which, if you know anything about the elevation changes in Manhattan, it was probably not significant enough to name an entire team after. But hey, as long as it wasn't a reference to the color of their socks, I'm happy with it. Despite the choice of a name, they were often referred to as the New York Americans in response to them being the American League team in New York. Some especially snarky reporters called them the New York Invaders in deference to the New York Giants. The two New York teams did eventually become friendly to each other. In 1911, the original polo grounds burned down and the Giants needed a place to play. So the Highlanders shared Hilltop Park with them. In 1913, the Giants returned the favor and the Highlanders moved to the Polo Grounds and began sharing that ballpark. Once they were no longer in the high altitude of Hilltop Park, the name Highlanders officially changed to the Yankees. Because, of course, Highlanders doesn't make sense if you're not in the highlands of Upper Manhattan. I don't know, but they changed it. The name Highlanders had never really been a favorite of the papers anyway, and the name Yankees had popped up sporadically as early as 1904. 
But it wasn't until 1913, with that downslope move, that the name officially switched to Yankees. And then they were off, becoming the biggest name in Major League Baseball, one of the biggest names in the entire sporting world. And I'm glad there's not much more to talk about. Because I am spent, you have spent an hour with me talking about these names. I never knew it was going to be this long. I thought it would be easy and short, but I am done. You're out. As always, thank you so much for spending some time with me talking about baseball. And until next time, keep rounding those bases. This podcast was made possible by the diligent, slow research, writing, editing, recording, and performance of Michael Cotton. The only thing I didn't do was the theme song that was written, recorded, and produced by the incomparable Danny Rocket. And with that, we are out of this rabbit hole. Round the-